Welcome to Crashing the War Party. My co-host, Daniel Laris, and I have been proudly bringing you unvarnished news and views since April 2021 and have spent the better part of 2022 trying to make sense of the Russian invasion and the war in Ukraine. In the second half of our show today, we will talk about another hot spot on the globe that has received significantly less attention, and that's Yemen. We will talk to the Quincy Institute's Enel Sheline about recent attempts by the Congress to help end it. But first, Dan and I will be off next week for the holidays, so we thought we might use this episode as a look back at 2022. Wow. When we began last year, we had a number of folks on the show, including Ted Carpenter, Josh Schifferson, and Lyle Goldstein, who were warning that if Russia did pull a move in Ukraine, that it would be in no small part Washington's fault for not trying to defuse the situation earlier. We have had plenty of people on the show talking about the role of NATO expansion and the buildup and the drilling of U.S. forces near the border long before the actual invasion happened in February. So, Dan, I asked you, were our guests vindicated in their analysis? Did they underestimate Russia and that there seemed to be some doubt right up to the end uh, or right up until the point of the invasion that the Russian intentions um, wouldn't? go beyond the Russian-speaking areas of eastern Ukraine, or were our analysts spot on? What are your thoughts now looking back? Well, speaking with myself, I, I know that there was, I was off in my limits of what the Russians were would be going to do. Um, I assumed that they would not embark on the full-scale invasion that they did because I assumed that the costs of doing so would be so much higher than anybody was estimating or than, than the Russians were apparently estimating. Uh, they they seem to have thought that they would just pull in and take over minimal resistance and it proved to be and it proved not to be the case. Um, so in in terms of my analysis, I I overestimated the Russian government's common sense, I guess. I, I overestimated their their ability to anticipate pitfalls of a major invasion like that because clearly if they had calculated correctly what the costs would be they would not have gone through with i I assume they would not have gone through with it if they understood what the full costs were once they were into it they started rationalizing it and and justifying it to themselves as as that it was necessary to continue on with whatever they were doing because they had already lost so much and so the sunk cost fallacy ended up putting them that way in terms of our guests, I think a lot of them were, were much more on the money in terms of anticipating both what the Russians were going to do uh, and, and the reasons for it. In particular, you mentioned Lyle Goldstein. I remember he was talking uh, some weeks before the invasion happened. And he was very concerned that it was going to happen because he was listening to a lot of the propaganda and the, the state news that was kind of whipping up the mood to justify an attack. And so I think you have, uh, we, we had a lot of people who came on and, and correctly foresaw what was about to happen. Um, and, and they were, but they were also, as you say, frustrated with U.S. response because U.S. diplomacy was so, you know, I don't want to put words in their mouths, but I would characterize it as half-hearted. 
because there was there was this gesture of being willing to talk about outstanding issues with the Russians, none of the issues that the Russians were actually complaining about. So we would talk with the Russians about arms control, or they would talk with the Russians about those sorts of bilateral issues, but they would never address the, the issue of NATO expansion or the, the open door to NATO or the status of Ukraine in connection with the alliance. So that was something that I thought was a failure on the part of our government or on the part of the Allies. Or it, it might have been possible to find an off-ramp then. Of course, now the war has been going on for almost a year. Uh, that, that now seems very far away. And I, I don't, I don't know that we can, we'll be able to retrieve it, uh, retrieve the situation from where it is now. Uh, but I, I think that there was a missed opportunity to, to try to avert the worst case. And I, I and we will, we won't know the full reason for why that opportunity was missed until everyone writes their memoirs, I guess. But it is, uh, it was, it was a serious, lapse and oversight on, on the part of, of Western governments, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think if there was any underestimation going on, I think it was of the Ukrainian forces and the capabilities they had once Russia invaded. I think that there was a lot of parlor talk ahead of time that went back and forth. And you know, on, on one hand, you'd hear, oh, the Ukrainians are going to get um, they're going to get romped by the Russians. Uh, others would say the Russians um, had sort of spent themselves in Syria. So there's a, quite a bit of back and forth. But we know now that all of the training that we did with Ukraine and Ukraine's forces since 2014 had really paid off. And I think we underestimated, and I say we meaning probably like the media itself and observers who are not directly involved in U.S. military operations, that they were very well trained, very well equipped. They had used the time between 2014 and today when uh, the Minsk agreements fell apart. Angela Merkel just admitted uh, in an interview this month that uh, the Minsk agreements, the failure of them, um, were basically orchestrated to allow Ukraine to build up its forces in anticipation of a, a greater conflict with Russia. And so they did sort of put, they pushed back hard and surprised a lot of people, a lot of observers after February and kept Russia from realizing any further um, broader gains in Russia beyond the, the Russian-speaking areas of, of the East. Though today we sit here talking, it's December 20th, 2022, and the news doesn't look too good for uh, Ukraine. Their infrastructure has been crippled, electricity, internet, and they're basically fighting a what we're calling now a war of attrition you know, with Russia, uh, a, a, a stalemate with Russia making incremental gains against Ukraine in Bakhmut in, um, in, in, in the eastern part of the country. And um, they're hurting. And what we're hearing is that they have maintained uh, many more casualties 
than the Ukrainian ministry has admitted over these last several months. And so I think we're going to start seeing some real bad news come out of Ukraine. Uh, we are giving them more money, though, and we're giving them more assistance. And we're planning, as of this recording, to give them, I understand, a Patriot missile system. So I feel like the United States is committed to the military end of this operation, but not so much to the diplomatic end, or at least not as committed to the diplomatic part, which we all know is necessary in order to end the violence there. I want, and I think one of the, the problems with the way that the administration has handled this, I, I read that they, they've done reasonably well in terms of providing the assistance that, that has been given and, and also keeping that assistance limited so that it doesn't lead to escalation. Uh, but when it comes to uh, their, their positioning with respect to, to the idea of talks or, or finding a negotiated settlement, they, they always back themselves into this corner by saying, uh, we will back Ukraine for as long as it takes, and we will let the Ukrainian government decide when that is. So you've, you've essentially delegated that part of your diplomatic effort to their decision-making. And I understand that there's, there's a reluctance to, to use our leverage or to use our position as a patron uh, to wield influence over the, the recipient of that assistance. But that is what patrons do in international politics. That's what they've always done. And, and if, as everyone says, the U.S. is providing statistics to Ukraine, not just for, for uh, reasons of solidarity, but because it serves our own interests, then certainly the U.S. must have some sort of a say in where, how those interests are served and when the conflict should be brought to a close. And so, I, I'm hopeful that the Biden administration, at least in private, is being much more forthright with the Ukrainians in saying that there are limits on what our assistance is going to be. It isn't going to continue forever. And we're not going to back every objective that you have uh, to the hilt. So, for instance, if there is an ambition to retake Crimea by force, that's something where I think the, the U.S. can draw a line and say, we will not support a campaign to do that because of the escalation risks that that entails and that we would we would support a negotiated settlement that stops short of that and and that we will support you up until that point that it's not going to continue on uh without end because when when our government says that things are going to continue on without end it it often will stick to that line uh, and it, and it will never find a way to, to simply cut its losses and, and say enough is enough. As we saw, even in, in our own war in Afghanistan, it took 20 years to finally acknowledge that it was enough. And when we're, when we're funding someone else's war effort, in theory, we could keep it going much longer than that if we were blind. Uh, so I think we, we have to really uh, draw, draw clear lines with the Ukrainians as to what we are willing to support and what we're not willing to support. And they need to understand that. And then, and then they can make their own decisions accordingly. Okay. Let's talk about the other big foreign policy story of the year. And that's Taiwan. Um, we have heard more often than not that uh, the United States is um, 
sort of facing a, the possibility of a two front war. One, if it gets dragged in via NATO into a direct confrontation with Russia, which day by day increasingly looks like um, a possibility. But then on the other side of the world, Taiwan and China. We've had plenty of guests on this show who have been warning uh, that the U.S. continues to talk about Chinese provocations when all along there's been this undermining by Washington of the one China policy, all but daring China to attack Taiwan. There's been a buildup of uh, our defense budgets uh, justified by this competition, this this potential conflict with Taiwan. What do you think, Dan? You know, if there has been one overriding theme uh, regarding U.S.-China relations this year, what what would it be? Well, I think it's the, the theme has been uh, deterioration. The, the relations between the U.S. and China have been deteriorating steadily throughout the year. Uh, that, of course, it started uh, even earlier in the, in the first year of the Biden administration, but this year it really sped up. Um, as you had the president saying on multiple occasions that the U.S. would intervene directly, would send U.S. troops to defend Taiwan, uh, in, in basically the most explicit statements to that effect that a president has given since uh, the end of the treaty with Taiwan in 1979. And so those were very provocative remarks in themselves, um, and it it was part of a larger pattern of sort of goading China over Taiwan. Uh, Of course, uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taipei over the summer uh, was the the low point where you had a very deliberate and a gratuitous move on her part uh, to poke the Chinese in the eye over this. Uh, and that was, uh, and that, that led to, to immediate negative consequences for Taiwan. Luckily, they were, they were relatively limited. They were quite serious and all the same. And now that the status quo uh, that had existed in terms of where Chinese forces grill and where they're willing to go uh, in in relation to the main island, Taiwan, uh, has changed uh, to Taiwan's detriment. And so uh, we, we saw at the end of the year Biden and Xi Jinping meeting in Indonesia and trying to consensus and to try to paper over a lot of this damage that had been done. But basically all they were able to do was to get things back to where they were at the start of the year. And so that the entire year was wasted. All of these pointless displays of of posturing uh, and 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 a gratuitous anti-china messaging that i I don't think actually served the the interests of taiwan or the united states and so now they're they're in a kind of damage control mode to try to make up for all the mess that's been made over the last 12 months and so it it's it's concerning to me because you you keep hearing this build of demands for so-called strategic clarity, making an explicit security commitment to Taiwan. That's I think quite dangerous for Taiwan and for us because the the truth is right now we don't have we don't really have the capabilities to fight the war we would need to be able to fight. 
to prevent China from taking Taiwan, or at least making a very serious attempt at taking it. And I don't think anybody is fully grasping the, the seriousness and the severity of conflict, direct conflict with, with China over this, this issue. And so there's, um, this is sort of, in addition to deterioration, there's a sort of drift towards conflict. And, and no one seems to be doing very much to try to, to rein it in. But I guess the, the one silver lining in all of this is that some of these gratuitous posturing displays by Pelosi and others has sort of created a rift among China hawks so that you have some China hawks who are wary enough and are cautious enough about provoking China that they, they see some of these more aggressive moves as a, a serious danger yeah, and have been warning about them. So what looked like a very solid hawkish consensus uh, is, is maybe starting to splinter a bit as people realize just how dangerous things are getting. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, from, from my perch in Washington, I feel like the real danger is not that there is an explicit call to go to war with China, but yet there's so much self-interest in this town to build up budgets to um, create this great power conflict that needed needs to be confronted, that needs to be um, acknowledged, that we will be sleepwalking into that war. And I and I'm specifically talking about not only the recent um, budget, uh, the NDAA, which is the Pentagon's main. A budget authorization bill. There's a ton of new money, and I, I want to say $10 billion for Taiwan-related um, uh, spending alone. But there are all sorts of new authorizations for defense contractors to build uh, new equipment and weapon systems for Ukraine with tons of loopholes so that they can do it faster that and 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 more efficiently, quote unquote, that many watchdogs believe won't go away because they want those authorities to build up the arsenals for China. And I've been hearing this increasingly over the last month that there is concern that we are depleting our stockpiles uh, for Ukraine so that we have to build up our stockpiles and our capabilities for China. And so I feel like there is a ton of justification for ramping up our military uh, budgets, our, our primacy in the region. And a lot of it is self-serving for the industry, for politicians. And I, I'm, I fear that that could actually lead us to a confrontation, whether um, intentionally or not. Our guest today is Anel Shuline. She is a research fellow for the Middle East at the Quincy Institute and a non-residential fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. Welcome to the show. 
Thanks so much for having me. That's good to have you on. And uh, yeah, sorry to our listeners if, if I sound a little uh, hoarse. Uh, I'm recovering from the cold. Um, yeah, so thanks for bearing with me. Um, and so we, we just had a, a bit of drama in the Senate uh, recently. Senator Sanders was set to introduce or had introduced a new war powers resolution on Yemen. The Biden administration had been heavily lobbying against it. And then the senator uh, announced he was going to withdraw the resolution to work out language with the administration that would satisfy them. This dissatisfied uh, many anti-war activists. It was, of course, uh, disappointing to see, uh, especially for those of us who have worked on this for a long time. Um, in your view, was it a mistake to withdraw the resolution this year? And do you think we will see it reintroduced in 2023? So it, you know, it certainly was a disappointment. You know, this we're, we're recording now on on Tuesday. This was a week ago um, that you know my, myself and others had been working really hard following Bernie's announcement the week before that he was going to go ahead and bring the war powers resolution to the floor. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as a mistake because, as Senator Sanders himself has acknowledged, he didn't have the votes. Um, for it to pass. And, you know, when when he was interviewed by The Intercept and, and had announced that he would indeed be bringing this vote to the floor, he said that he did have the votes. And unfortunately, I think um, it was largely due to the lobbying effort by the Biden administration pushing against the War Powers Resolution that then we saw some prominent senators that had previously supported the resolution coming out and saying that they would not vote for it. And from there, um, you know, the, the tide really started to turn. And so I think it was probably wise for Bernie to say, this is not the time. Um, he got, he, he got a commitment from the Biden administration to work with him. We'll see what that ends up looking like. Um, but he has committed to bringing it back to the floor. Unfortunately, that would be in the new Congress where um, Dems will not control the House. And for all that, theoretically, I see this as something where Republicans could use this as a means of holding Biden accountable. Um, we're not likely to see that. In the past, when when people voted for the War Powers Resolution under Trump, it, it tended to be a Democratic vote against Trump. It was a means of trying to hold him accountable um, for his unabashed support for Saudi Arabia in the wake of Hashoggi's gruesome murder, um, as well as obviously accountability around the war in Yemen. Um, so ideally, we would maybe see a similar dynamic with the Republicans hopping on to, to oppose Biden, but that's not what we've seen, unfortunately. Um, and so, you know, Bernie didn't have the votes last time there, there's been an effort to, you know, there, there are ongoing efforts through grassroots and, you know, we've, we've gotten signals from several additional um, prominent members that they do support it. So uh, it's the fight's not over, but, it, you know, it's the dynamics just very different now. Whereas, you know, when the war powers resolution passed in 2019 and Trump vetoed it, every uh, Democratic senator voted in favor. Um, and I just don't know that we'd see that this time. This gets us to the the arguments that the Biden administration is using against the resolution. Uh, and one of the things that they have been saying, they believe this would undermine diplomatic efforts in Yemen, and it would jeopardize uh, the, the relative uh, lack of fighting that we are currently seeing. But wouldn't it really be worse for those same efforts to give the Saudi coalition encouragement by blocking it and by by 
essentially stymieing Congress in in opposing uh, U.S. involvement in the war. Certainly. And, you know, this is one thing that I think is really important to keep in mind is we have we know that the Saudis pay close attention to what it is that Congress is doing. And previously, when we had seen efforts by Congress to try to impose a war powers resolution again under Trump, we saw airstrikes at that time decline precipitously. Um, the Saudis know that they cannot maintain their, the airstrikes without the assistance of the U.S. military and military contractors. Um, we know it would be very humiliating for Mohammed bin Salman to have to admit that he, he can't really fly his own planes without U.S. help. So the Saudis don't want it to get that far. They'd rather ramp way down. Um, but, uh, are you, you know, allegedly keep, keep the option on the table to restart those airstrikes. And this is the argument the Biden administration is using. They also say that it's important from the perspective of, of using leverage against the Houthis to keep the option of these Saudi airstrikes on the table, which I reject. I, I don't think it is in any way acceptable to hold the population of Yemen hostage to the possibility of more airstrikes. People who are in favor of this, whether it's the administration or, or other experts who um, are very opposed to the Houthis, uh, you know, they they maintain that, yes, it's important to keep this leverage. The Houthis were a big part of why the truce expired and was not extended back in October. Um, and this is accurate. The Houthis feel they are winning and they are not going to negotiate um from a position of weakness, they they feel they have the upper hand here, and so this is why some of these this this perspective the administration is is maintaining is that we have to keep up leverage on the Houthis. But again, I, I just categorically reject the notion that it is acceptable to to use airstrikes on a civilian population as a form of leverage. Well, yeah, and I certainly agree with that. One of the the main forms of backing that the U.S. still provides to both the Saudis and the UAE, of course, comes in the form of arms sales. And I've seen some anti-war activists who are critical of the war powers resolution make this point that if you want to go after U.S. support for these governments, you should go after the arms sales. But of course, Congress tries to block arms sales and, and, and routinely fails because everything is stacked against Congress in that process. Uh, and so it's, it's much harder to block arms sales than it is to get a war powers resolution. So, so I, I, I found some of the criticisms of the resolution a little strange when, when challenging the arms sales would of course be good, but, but it's a much, uh, larger hill to climb for opponents of the war. Um, so even if the resolution can't force an end to all forms of U.S. backing, uh, wouldn't it be important to affirm that we must not be involved in the ongoing war uh, in other respects? A hundred percent. And, you know, I, I have also heard those criticisms and I agree that it, it is very unfortunate that Congress thus far has never successfully blocked any weapon sale. Um, we had a joint resolution of disapproval <clears throat> that that tried to make its way um around this about a year ago i think it was last december um that was bipartisan and it failed as you said it's a it's a more difficult um legislative uh hill to climb whereas the war powers resolution only requires a simple majority to pass it does not have to be filibuster proof 
Um, and as you said, it would end U.S. support for these airstrikes. Unfortunately, the Saudis have purchased hundreds of billions of dollars of weapons from the United States. They are America's biggest customer of our weapons industry. Um, so they, they have all of those weapons still, and we, we can't do anything about that at this point, other than hopefully in the future really rethinking this relationship and hopefully ending those sales. But, you know, just, just exactly as you said, a WPR uh, is better than nothing and is the, the most likely legislative vehicle that could actually be passed in trying to send a clear signal to the Saudis here. And like I said, part of this is the Saudis don't want to be in a position where they're exposed uh, as being so dependent on the United States. Um, so I, I think this, again, is part of why, as you said at the outset, uh, it's it's important for Congress to send these signals that the U.S. is, is very serious about getting out of supporting the war in Yemen. Um, it, we don't want in any way to send a signal that the U.S. doesn't care or that the Biden administration is kind of giving them carte blanche to continue whatever it is that, that they decide they want to do against the Houthis. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the, the potential of a war powers resolution is part of why we did see the truce being agreed to back in April. Part of this was also that the, the Houthis were really, um, imposing some significant pain on the Saudis with their transborder attacks, such that the Saudis finally said, yeah, we'll, we'll end the airstrikes as long as you guys stop firing drones and missiles across the border. Um, Again, I think the scale of that is really important to keep in mind. At the time, we heard a lot of noise about how the you know poor Saudi Arabia was being threatened by the Houthis. But just the scale of, of Saudi bombardment of Yemen was uh, 10 air raids a day on average. And within any given raid, there are multiple air strikes, so individual bombs. Um, whereas Houthi drones or missile attacks uh, on average were a single single projectile every other day. So compare that to, to 10 air raids every day. Um, so, you know, certainly the, the Houthis were expanding their capacity to hurt the Saudis. And again, this is why we did see them decide to agree to the truce. But a significant part of that was also the fact that we had had Congress coming out and saying that they were going to move forward on a war powers resolution last spring. Hi, Anel. It's Kelly. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Um, let's, I wanted to get into the nitty gritty a little bit on the War Powers Act itself. One of the things that I've heard from critics is that, that, um, there's been a shift in the reality on the ground, uh, at least from the time when the first War Powers Act was passed by Congress in 2018 and, and which I, you know, Correct me if I'm wrong. Some of the the measures within that one were, you know, stopping the refueling and the uh, intelligence or other assistance that we were giving directly to the Saudis. Can you tell us in this particular War Powers Act, what would it have stopped? Like what assistance are we still supplying to Saudi Arabia that would have ended if if this War Powers Act were, were passed and it was signed by the president? Um, or is it is it merely symbolic, which is fine too? But just just for our listeners and, and for my my I guess my own knowledge, 
Um, what are we missing here without passing this this act? Yeah, so um, I'll I'm bringing up the the text of it right now just to make sure we've got the specifics. So, <clears throat> in terms of what this would have targeted and how Congress was defining hostilities. This would have um, included sharing intelligence for the purpose of enabling offensive coalition strikes, as well as providing logistical support for offensive coalition strikes, including by providing maintenance or transferring spare parts to coalition members, flying warplanes engaged in anti-Houthi bombings in Yemen. So essentially intelligence sharing and um, spare parts and maintenance for these planes flying bombing missions over Yemen. Um, and part, part of the, the concern that we've heard is with intelligence sharing, could that have implications for U.S. support for Ukraine? Hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the point there is, look, it's up to Congress to, to, to you know, impose a war powers resolution on what the U.S. is doing in Ukraine, just because um, if if this ended up being passed with the intelligence sharing mes- measure, that would only apply to the Yemeni context. Right. So there's an argument to be made that, well, then the precedent set and if, if intelligence sharing is defined underneath that, like that could then be applied to the war in Ukraine. But Congress would still have to do so. Um, there's, it's not a, a legal precedent such that automatically that would go into effect. And up to this point, we have seen Congress authorizing massive amounts of U.S. support to Ukraine. So I, I don't, I don't really understand the concern that this would undermine U.S. support for Ukraine because, again, the War Powers Resolution is is when Congress sees fit to try to assert its war-making authority over the president. And thus far, we have never actually seen Congress successfully do that since 1973 when this act was passed in the context of Vietnam. So, So, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, So, you know, the the other aspect, the spare parts and maintenance, um, this, this is, I think, what's particularly crucial for making sure that the U.S. would no longer be complicit in bombing Yemen, that Saudi Arabia cannot do this without the assistance of the U.S. military and military contractors. Um, and so if, if, if this were passed and the U.S. no longer provided that assistance, the Saudis, um, well, two, two-thirds of the Saudi Air Force, they still have one-third of their air force is built by the U.K. and if the UK continued to provide the support, they would have um, one third of their planes available to continue to do those bombing runs. Um, but arguably, the UK would, would probably follow suit with the US here if, if the US really came out very strongly um, against it. And, you know, the other critique here is that, well, the Saudis aren't currently bo- dropping bombs, although the truce expired in October. We have not seen a resumption of these transborder attacks, either from the Saudis or the Houthis. Um, but I think the concern is there's nothing stopping the Saudis from reinitiating those airstrikes. And given the abundance of airstrikes we have seen the, the Saudis drop in the past, um, there, there's no reason to think that they 
they wouldn't choose to again reinitiate if they saw that as as something um you know that they needed to send a signal to the houthis or or whatever it was just the the fact that the us could again so easily become complicit in in this devastation of the civilian population you know that and kelly to your point is well are things different now there's this ongoing diplomacy that's um somewhat debatable the 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 extent to which the houthis and the saudis are in talks to uh, formalize some sort of more long-standing agreement. I've heard different accounts of that. Um, on the one hand, I, I do think it's plausible that the Saudis and Houthis are talking. However, I've also heard that, that those specific talks have failed. So there isn't, in fact, kind of current on ongoing negotiations that the War Powers Act would have disrupted. Um, but, but again, to all of these critiques, I just maintain that the U.S. should not be involved in helping the Saudis destroy Yemen. We shouldn't have been involved when Obama started this. We shouldn't have been involved under Trump. We shouldn't be involved now under Biden, especially after he said that he was going to end all support for offensive actions. Um, so while certainly the the conflict in Yemen is at a different phase now, I, I think that's fairly irrelevant. The point here is the U.S. shouldn't be part of this, should not be a party to this aggression. And so whenever that ends is great, and it should have happened a long time ago. Yeah, and I think what bothers me the most is, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the, that the Biden administration attempted to say that what's going on in terms of our assistance to Saudi Arabia and Yemen, it does not fall under uh, the definition of hostilities as laid out in the War Powers Act. But yet, you know, in 2019, a number of uh, officials, Democratic officials who are now in the administration, including Jake Sullivan, Wendy Sherman, um, there was Susan Rice, Samantha Power, you know, they and all Tony signed, <laughs> had Tony Blinken, they all signed um, a letter urging members of Congress to, you know, to, to pass war powers in, you know, language in the NDAA at the time. And so it, it seems to me that they've changed their tune and I'd hate to think it was for political reasons or that they too are being pressured by the military like, like Trump was. But I mean, it, it, it is a disappointment to see that a dramatic, a, sh a shift um, by members of this administration, including Biden. Certainly. Yes. I, I mean, I, I do think that the big push, the big successful push, whereby the War Powers Resolution passed both houses of Congress um, and then was vetoed by Trump. I do think that was very much political. This was a moment where people were outraged at, again, the murder of Hashoggi. Um, we'd seen a lot more attention to what was happening in Yemen. And this was a vote to, to, to show um, disapproval of Trump. Whereas now people, you know, Democratic members of Congress and members of his own administration are very averse to going against the administration's policy. And, you know, I think a big part of this is 
grounded in concerns that Biden had alienated Mohammed bin Salman. And we did see him travel to Saudi Arabia over the summer to try to repair that relationship. And obviously then saw the major cut in um, oil production from OPEC plus that was instigated by the Saudis and just all of the, the drama of the U S Saudi relationship, which just reiterates how dysfunctional this relationship is and and just again raises this question of why does the US continue to pursue policies in accordance with Saudi preferences that are not in fact supportive of US interests it is not in US interests to wage this war in Yemen um and and just because we think that this way the saudis will keep buying our weapons and won't go to china i mean first of all they've already gone to china you know we saw president xi in uh saudi arabia for for several days um just just um uh, over a week ago um so china is the saudi's biggest customer in terms of buying saudi oil and we know that the Saudis see China as the future. And part of that is that China offers a lot more than the U.S. does. It's not only about selling them weapons. It's, it's economic partnership and it's helping the Saudis diversify their economy. And the, the whole range of cooperation that China offers is something that the U.S. I think has really unfortunately gotten out of the business of um, uh, providing those same kinds of opportunities that many of these countries are looking for. And instead, the U.S. really just tends to sell weapons. And this has to do with the power of the military industrial complex and the extent to which our political system is captured by it. Um, but, you know, to, to end it, you know, you say something like that and people kind of shut down like, ah, uh, can't do much about that. But the point is, different decisions can be made here. You know, we, we did see Congress just voting to authorize this record-breaking Pentagon budget um, above and beyond what Biden himself, you know, his administration had requested. Uh, different choices can be made here. And moving forward, we are increasingly going to see countries like Saudi Arabia, like the UAE, like many of, many of these other countries that we once sort of saw as our partners, but also to a certain extent as almost vassal states that they would kind of do what the U.S. wanted, we're not going to see that anymore. Um, and this is something the U.S. political establishment is just going to have to get used to. And we're going to have to change our policies as well, such that we are if, if our preferences are no longer aligned with these countries, we need to adopt some new policies. Absolutely. And I, and I hope that we will see uh, some of those changes taking place in, in the years to come. Uh, for now, we, we're out of time. Uh, we'll have to close there. Uh, Anel Schuline, uh, the Quincy Institute, thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me back on. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>